we're studying the Gospel of Mark, as you know, and we're in the 13th chapter. I'd like to pick up again at verse 24. Uh, I'm not going to read through all this again, but remember, uh, Mark 13 is the Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse, which is the um, discourse, the teaching that Jesus does uh, in answering the questions of his disciples, which again, you go back to the beginning of the chapter, you see that. And uh, I drew something on the board last week. I'm not going to draw it again, but what I hope you're with me here and you understand what I'm saying because we talked about that last week. The Olivet Discourse is answering two questions primarily. What's the sign of the end of the age? What's the sign of your coming? And in answering the question, the sign of signs of the end of the age, Jesus is dealing with what from Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 is the 70th week. Again, I hope that's somewhat familiar to you, that you have an idea of what that means. Uh, the Lord Jesus gives a name to that seven year. He calls it the tribulation. That's where we get that name. And, he, and this is what we covered last week. He talks about all of the different things that occur during that period. And then he stresses in the middle of that week, an abominable one who desolates, sets up worship of himself in the temple. Okay? And so that's what Jesus dealt with. We so, quickly surveyed all that last week. And what I want to pick up in verse 24 is now he begins to answer that other question, sign of your coming. But in those days after that tribulation, there's that label that Jesus gives to that period, and it becomes a proper noun that people put and make it a capital, capital T, tribulation. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. I mentioned this last week, and I want to mention this again. Jesus is using day of the Lord language here. Now, again, I talked about that last week, but day of the Lord is a phrase that comes out of the Old Testament and is repeated throughout the New Testament. Paul uses it in Second uh, Thessalonians, in the book of Revelation. But day of the Lord is a concept, but it's a concept that describes the breaking of God into human history to accomplish his purposes. Usually those purposes are first a time of judgment, followed by a time of blessing. Again, I uh, I can say a lot about that, but that's basically what he's doing. And the day of the Lord, in the book of Amos, book of Joel, some of the prophets of the Old Testament, um, day of the Lord gives us the language, the language of prophecy. And that's the language that Jesus uses. That's the language that Paul uses. And that's the language of the book of Revelation. All of these, and they're true in the real meaning of that overused word, these incredible events that occur in the heavens and on the earth. And so what Jesus is saying in verse 24 and 25 is a series of cosmic events. You know what I mean by cosmic? Cosmic events will occur that will be a part of surrounding my return. And then, so there's a sequence here, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and great glory. And I remind you, and I know we talked about this before, Son of Man is a title that echoes back to Daniel 7.13. One like a Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days and receives dominion, power, and authority in the kingdom. And so everybody that knows the Old Testament, and by that I meant the people who were first heard Jesus talk about this, 
would understand what he's saying there. Coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And you'll notice, if you will, in verse 26, the plural pronoun they, then they will see. So this is an event that everyone will see. And when you're in, in Matthew's account of this, in Matthew chapter 24, in Matthew's account of this, Jesus uh, even extends it, because remember, each writer chooses to just quote certain things. But he extends it, and Jesus says, everyone, in fact, everyone will see my return. This isn't going to be a secret return. It isn't going to be only a few people. Everyone will see my return. It will be unmistakable. He uses a simile. It will be like lightning going from one end of the sky to the other. And, you know, if you see lightning like that, that's really dramatically powerful. But it's just, it's unmistakable what Christ is saying. My, my return will be unmistakable. Everyone will see it. And then he adds one other thing. And then, so it's kind of a sequence. This, and then, and then, so it's a sequence, chronological sequence. He, meaning the Son of Man, will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. And that is that is announced a number of different places throughout the Bible, and it is in the book of Revelation. And again, it's in Matthew 24. Because what, what the angels will do is they will begin that separation of living humanity. Do you understand that sentence? Separate, they will begin that separation of living humanity. And the Lord Jesus talks about that in, in Matthew uh, 25, 15, and so on, or sometimes called the judgment of the nations, but it separates living humanity into the sheep and the goats. Remember, that's a figure of speech. But on his right are the sheep, on his left, what happens to the goats? They go into eternal judgment. What happens to the sheep? They enter the kingdom. So that's all. And it's, it's typical Mark. He just synopsis, synopsis. He uh summarizes all of this. It's an incredibly complex series of events. He summarizes all this in four verses. Whereas Matthew takes a whole chapter, and parts of Revelation take several chapters. But that's typical Mark, docudrama, the kind of approach that Mark has. And so that's it. So the Lord has answered their questions, and he's, he's answered it um, just like he, as the records are in Luke and, and the records of it are in, in Matthew. And he's, he's given his, this is Jesus now, he's given his quick overview of end time. Now, from the Olivet Discourse, you can't put a very good chronology together. From the Olivet Discourse, it's, it's hard to be, you know, all the specific things that you see, for example, in the book of Revelation, where you see the seal judgments followed by the trumpet judgments followed by the, the bowl judgments. Jesus doesn't do it that way. He's just, here's, what, here's what's going to happen. Bang, 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 bang. That's it. And then I'm coming back. And that's it. And that's all. I mean, that's all. in one sense, at one level, that's all we need to know. But it's just, it's the Olivet Discourse, and especially Mark's shortened account of the Olivet Discourse, at one level, is frustrating. And what I mean by that is you pepper it with questions. You want to know more about it. And so you got to go to like Luke's account, and then more, even more comprehensively, Matthew's account. And then you have to go to Thessalonian letters, you have to go to the book of Revelation, and so on. But again, that's all we're studying. We're studying Mark. We're not doing any comprehensive study of prophecy. And Jim, can't, can't we, on the basis of that, say this is one book? One book. Old and New oh, Testament. Yes. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And they all, all 
aspects of that one book complement one another. They do not contradict one another. That's right. Jim, I have a question. All right. Now, I, I wanted to get through all of that last week and at the pace I, I wanted to get through it. Um, are there any questions either from last week or from what we just covered either yes, here in the room or, or I have on a the question. online there? This is Woody. So, Fred. Um, um, can you expand a little bit on powers in the heavens? That, or is that a bunny trail? Well, um, the, yeah, that's a good, well, it is, yes, but I'll, I'll answer it good. Good, uh, it's a good question. Uh, Fred's question was raised in verse 25, the powers in the heavens. Um, that is uh, most expositors, and that's certainly how I look at it. Most expositors understand that to be the supernatural powers in the heaven. That is, all those that are both the good angels that remained loyal to Jesus and the fallen angels that rebelled against Jesus. Jesus calls them fallen angels that rebelled against Jesus when Satan rebelled. So this return of Jesus shakes up the cosmic powers of the universe, both physical, which is what you read about in verse 24 and early 25, and also in the in the spiritual. Things are now things are now coming to an end, coming to the conclusion. The Son of Man has returned to earth. He's going to crush the rebellion and set up his kingdom. That affects everything, including the cosmic forces. Hello, Ed. Oh. It's been a long time since I've seen you in a, as a, in a, a living body, <laughs> Ed. So it's good to see you. Does that mean that maybe some of the fallen angels will then come back into the fold? Or? No, no. I see no evidence in the Bible that fallen angels will come back into a relationship with the living God. They will be judged. And that's, that's one of the things that happens as a result of the Lord's return. They made their choice. And that's correct. That's, that's, it. that's correct. That's, thank you for asking us two questions. All right. Now, verse 28, what the Lord does here is he, and again, Mark's account of this is so short. But he says, from the fig tree learn its lesson. Now, we had read about some of that earlier where Jesus had cursed the fig tree. Do you remember some of that? That may or may not be relating to that. He's just saying from the fig. Now, when you go to Luke 21, 29, Luke's account says from the fig tree and all other trees. So Jesus is not here. He was earlier, but not here using the fig tree as a, as a symbol of Israel. Because the fig tree is a symbol of Israel in the Old Testament, and that's how Jesus used it earlier. Here he's just saying, from the fig tree, from and, and all trees, at Luke 21, 29. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. And so for us right now, he would say for in the fall, as soon as you see the branch begin to lose its leaves, you know that fall is near. So that's all he's saying. He isn't making any comment about Israel. He's just saying, what is his point? When you start seeing the things that I've just been talking about, know that my return and the setting up of my kingdom is near. Now, Jesus will do it a little bit in the next paragraph. But then what Matthew does when Jesus teaches this, Matthew adds, a number of parables Jesus teaches, because you know it's near. There are two things I want you to do. Always be ready and always be faithful, because you don't know when I'm returning. 
And that is as relevant for us today in 2021 as it was for the people that first heard this in AD 33. You don't know when I'm coming back. Nobody knows. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to count days. Just be ready and be faithful. And that is relevant. I, I think I've mentioned this before in this class, but I studied under a man who he, he said that a couple of times. To us, if you knew Jesus was coming back in exactly six months, how would that change how you live? What's the right answer to that question? It should not change how you live. You should be living with that expectation because that's that's a part of this, the purpose of this. But that's the teaching of Jesus, and indeed the teaching of the, of the scriptures. And so then he goes on. Okay, you kind of have the figure now in your mind of what he's saying. Now, verse twenty-nine, the application of this. So also, when you see these things, what he's just been talking about, especially in verses 14 through 23, but even the earlier part, which deals with the first three and a half years, you know that he is near at the very gate. That's a, that's a, a pronoun, he. Who's the he? What's well, the son of man? It's Jesus. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Now, let me stop there before we conclude it. There, gentlemen, there have been books written on what generation means. Nobody agrees on that. There are so many ways in which individuals over the centuries, and I really mean centuries, have looked at this. The Greek word is genea, G-E-N-E-A, and you can see generation comes from that. But it's, it's Ganea. It's a very broad word. And so does he mean, is he referring to the Jewish generation that's alive? Because they're really kind of the key thing at the end of time. They're going to come and, and accept their Messiah as Savior. Or is he talking just more, more broadly, generation is Ganea, people. The people who are alive, when this they see this, they're not going to pass away. They're going to see it completed because it's seven years. That's my understanding. Jesus is not being specific here. He's not focusing on a particular group of people. He's just saying the people that are alive on planet Earth that see these things will not pass away. They're going to see it fulfilled because it's a short period of time. And that's all he's saying. I'm telling you, here are the things to look for, and when you see them, you will see it all completed. In other words, you're going to see me return. And then he says, to, just to, to give absolute authority to what he declared, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What is he just saying? Bank on it. What I just told you is going to happen. It isn't, it might happen. It may happen. It is going to happen. And Jesus says this a couple of times in various contexts. But he's always saying when, this is Jesus speaking, when I declare something that's going to occur, bank on it. It is going to occur. And so that becomes, uh, that becomes very important for us, even as we read it 2,000 years later. Because it's been 2,000 years, and we're still waiting for this to occur. But Jesus keeps saying, even though, it's really interesting, a couple of years ago we studied, this was a Peter, but in Second Peter, 
Peter warns, people are going to mock you because people are going to say, well, you say he's coming back. It's been a long time. He still isn't coming back. Nobody believes that anymore. Well, that was Peter writing in AD 66. We're reading in 2021, and he still hasn't come back. I've had people say to me, to my face, you still don't believe in that old stuff, do you? And I look at them, yes, <laughs> because Jesus said, right. I guarantee you this will be fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away before. And doesn't that reflect his grace that he is caring and that people, he doesn't come down right then? Well, that's, what, that's exactly what Peter does. And Peter says, you should be thankful for this because that gives that gives more people a chance to respond. I put it this way. God delays the return of his son to increase the population of heaven. That's what he's doing. And that's grace. And so, I mean, that's the perspective we should have. And people that are mocking it and making fun of it, and I, that, I said it to that guy, you, then you need to be thankful because you still have a chance to respond to it. He didn't respond to it at that point. But anyway. All right. Now, there's one more thing Jesus does, and that's a short paragraph that begins with verse 32 of chapter 13. But concerning that day or that hour, okay, you understand what he means by that. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And that, uh, that creates for some people some theological tension, but it at one sense, I mean, remember, the Trinity is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. Relationally, Father, Son, Spirit, functionally, each have a different role. But Jesus is stressing in the, the, different, the different persons of the Trinity, it is the Father's role to send the Son. And so the Father knows when he's going to send the Son. That's what he means by this. Did I confuse you, or are you with me? For to, to understand the impact of what, and, and really I should say to understand even correctly, what Jesus is saying, you have to understand God is Trinity. Because this is, this, this is the focus of the uniqueness of the roles of the three persons of the Godhead. The Father will send the Son to go get his church. The Son doesn't send the Spirit to go get the church, or the Son send the Father to go to that church. The Father sends the Son to go get the church, just like the Father sent the Son to be incarnate and, and be born in Bethlehem and to die on a cross. The Father sent the Son to do that. And then in, the, in the, those things that unfold in the Gospel of John, and the Father and the Son then send the Holy Spirit. So, again, I, I'm trying to make this as simple as I can. Don't stumble over this. You mean the son doesn't, well, the, the, the son's role is waiting for his father to say, go get your church. That's what he means by that. So here, here's the application of this. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. That's back to my professors. If you knew Christ was coming back in exactly six months, how should that affect how you live? The answer is it shouldn't affect how you live. You should be living in that tiptoe expectation now. So that's what Jesus said, be on guard. It, it, it's, it's going to happen. Live as if Jesus is coming back in five seconds. 
or five years or 50 years or 500 years. He should be living as if he's going to return immediately. I really believe, and this is not original with me, actually, but I really believe when you study the Apostle Paul, I believe he really thought in those early years of his ministry that Jesus was going to come back. He really believed that. I mean, in his lifetime. So it's just, it's how it's hard to do that because we are hard to live with that kind of sense of expectation, mainly because we, we are so engaged in our temporal, spatial, time-oriented life. But Jesus is saying, I'm coming back, and everything's going to change. And so it's just an important point. There's an old saying that I use a lot. The future promises of God should affect how we live now. That is, that is a major premise of Scripture. And that's, here's another illustration of that. Are you with me on that, everybody? Can you talk a little yeah. bit more about the meaning of be on guard and be alert? I mean, I, I understand the whole concept of anticipating that it's going to happen, but is, is that an, are these purging us to greater work or caution? How would you characterize that? No, I, I think it's uh, urge, urging us and urging the first people who heard it now are urging us who are reading it 2,000 years later, this should affect how you live. So you're on guard. You're always ready. I mean, if you're on guard, that's a military, but you're always ready. You, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if the enemy's going to be over the hill in the next hour, but you're always ready. So it's kind of being on guard. is like you're always ready. And to, to be, to keep awake is to be alert but I think to an extent, too, it, it implies I, I'm faith, as I'm being alert, I'm faithful in doing what God wants me to do. I'm not allowing myself to get off track on what is not important to God. And that's hard, too, because that doesn't mean getting good night's sleep is important to God. That doesn't mean eating isn't important to God. But it's that you have that eternal perspective on things. I think I'm saying it this way correctly. You have that eternal perspective on things and everything you do. I plan my life, but I'm trusting God. He may mess it up. He may come back and everything will be more apart. But Jim, it's that, that tiptoe expectation that Jesus is going to come back. And I'm always ready. I'm alert. I'm not complacent. I'm serious. I'm faithful. It's all of those things dumped together. This is affecting how I live. And I think that's the that's what Christ is saying here, as he uses those like guard, alert, wake. Um, I one time said it. One time it was with a guy, and he said, "Well, Jesus hasn't come back for two thousand years." That just naturally leads me to be complacent. And I said, "That's just the opposite. That's just the opposite from what Scripture says." It shouldn't be, oh, my, that means it's a lot closer. You know, an old Baptist preacher used to say, you're one day closer to Jesus coming back. Each day you wake up, you're one day closer. Tony Evans recently said, um, we, we call him Lord, but is he Lord? If he were Lord, we would ask him daily, hourly. Even by the moment, at certain occasions, Lord, what would you have me do? And if we, he's going to be the Lord of our life, he has to be the Lord of our life now and until we are gone.
And it made so much sense to me because the Holy Spirit does give you guidance. And he will direct your path according to God's will. And it, it will be perfect. It won't be what we think always, but it'll be what his will is for our lives. And I think it's uh, it's kind of a, it, it's not necessarily that every moment, Fred, and I think you, you agree with that. You're asking the Lord, what do you want me to do now, Lord? It's, I mean, in a sense of it, it's that you just, you begin your day. I think that's, that's how my wife and I begin our day. We just say, Lord, whatever you have for us today, we're available, ready. And then you get on your day, and you, you go through your schedule and all that, but it's just, you're always available. I like that word available. You're always available for what God wants you to do in, in that day, whatever it is. Now, he just says, it's in verse 34 and, and following, he just uses their similes, but it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. So I, you, you get the, the simile, you get the analogy, don't you? A man's going on a journey. And he, and he gives everybody responsibilities, everybody jobs to do, everybody... Everybody thinks they're supposed to steward and carry out. And the longer he delays, you know, I don't think I have to work as hard today. It's been 10 years since our master's been gone. Let's slack off. What does he say? No, stay awake. Be on guard. And that, again, this to me, and I, I know you understand, I'm always frustrated with Mark. Because when you're in Matthew, then you have like 24 verses following us as, as Jesus elaborates on this. And he tells two parables, and he just, but it's it. It's typical Mark. He's just telling you all the specifics. All you need to know is stay awake. I'm not going to do it anymore. That's Mark's point. That's Mark's process. That's Mark's strategy. That's Mark's style. One thing, you don't want him coming back. Be ready and stay awake. And so then he says, you do not know the master of the castle will come in the evening at midnight when the rooster crows at just you know, 3 a.m. in the morning is when the roosters start crowing in the Middle East, or in the morning, which is 6 a.m., lest he come suddenly and you find you asleep. So I say to you all, stay away. How many times has he said stay away? Most figuratively and literally. You, you, one person put it this way. It sounds like something only a literary person would be perpetually ready, doing what he wants you to do, faithful and ready. Remember my definition of hope. Hope is expectancy with desire. You expect Jesus to come back, but you want him to come back. It's expectancy with desire. And if you genuine, if you have genuine biblical hope, then you're always ready. You're always ready. My mother, she, she passed away uh, not quite two years ago, but my mother, when I was a little boy, my mother used to say this to me. Jimmy, do you want to be doing that when Jesus comes back? <laughs> that was terribly manipulative and controlling, but it was biblically sound. Yeah. It really was. And so, you know, you can go and say that to your, your 
spouse tonight when you're talking about things, I wouldn't recommend that. No. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's 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 what Jesus is saying. Do you really do you want to be doing that with Jesus? Correct. And so that's part of it. a future promise of God should affect how we live today. And another, that's another way of saying what Jesus is really saying here. Yeah. Oh, uh, expectancy with desire. Don't, you know, it isn't the bottom line final word on it, but that's how I look at it. So as you, I mean, as you, I mean, you're well connected with the Christian community <clears throat> kind of at large. Do you sense there's really much anticipation of the Lord's return? I have to tell you, it's convicting to me because I don't ever really think about it. Well, once in a while, if I read something in scripture about it, I'll think about the Lord's return, but it's not something that's there every day. It's, it's not something that's immediately motivating, and maybe it should be. I, I don't, I don't know. I just, Jim, that is a really, really good question, a very important question. Um, no, I do not see a lot of this in the evangelical community. You know, when I, uh, when I was a child. And even into my teen years, before I, I pretty much rebelled against everything, um, at our church and a lot of churches—I'm from southeastern Pennsylvania—they had prophecy conferences. When I first started in, once I finished seminary and I, I started my, my work at Ministries at Grace, I was asked—I traveled all over the United States in, in the years that I was in ministry, and in those early years, I was asked to be a part of prophecy conference. The last time I was asked to do anything in terms of prophecy was a church in California. And I, nobody yet, nobody does that anymore. And I'm, I'm sure they do, but it is not an emphasis that you see very much in local church. It isn't something that is, in two levels, it isn't something that's systematically taught. And it's not something that, even, even when a person person is going through a book of the Bible and they get to a passage like this, there's usually not a lot of in-depth study of it. Okay, this is what's saying, Jesus is coming back, that's important for us, now we're going to move to chapter 14. I'm being a little cynical there, but that's often the way it is. And so Jim, I think because that is not an emphasis in a lot of churches, people do not think about it. And the motivation for engagement, really. Slackens to 27% of the Bible is prophecy. That's almost a third of God's word. And if you ignore that, you're ignoring a major part of God's word. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> but the, 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 this is, but then the, the other extreme of that, Jim, is you, you have people who have just notebooks full of stuff and they have, they have their timelines and they have all, and what they're focusing on is all these details. And they say, well, I wonder who the Antichrist is. That's the wrong question to be asking. That's not, who cares? That's the point. And they get, they get into these minute details that are really irrelevant if you're really a believer. And I don't mean it's irrelevant, but it, it's not. The, the important thing is there are certain signs that Jesus said to look for, and he's coming back. That's the triumphant victory. That affects how we live. And so, Jim, um, I, you sort of heard I feel really strongly about this. You raised the question. I feel really strongly about it, that. I do not think the local church, uh, there are exceptions, but that generally speaking, 
the local church is doing what it should do in this area. It's not just the local church. I mean, you have individual responsibility. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I mean, seeing this, but it seems, I mean, it seems so remote. Mm. Um, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to happen. I don't mean to suggest it's not, but it's so remote that it's, we don't know how remote or how immediate it is you know <laughs> we're just assuming yeah. well it, it is it's in our society yeah. my mom used to say that all the time there's always somebody saying on january 20th the yeah yeah all that and after you've been through that yeah. a bunch of times you do begin to get um dead into it or oh yeah yeah it over and over Oh, here we go again. Here we go yeah. again. I remember in 1988, there was a guy in Kansas City who put out a book. I think it was self-published, but Jesus is coming back in 1988. Right. Well, December 31st, 1988 passed, and he didn't come back. You know what he did? I made a mistake in my calculation. He's coming back in 1989. January 31st. Uh, huh? Wasn't it called 88 Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's it. When you start getting specific, about the thing and say this is that and and then you cross the line i think and you're going to experience some humiliation and embarrassment jesus isn't going to be embarrassed he can get, he can take care of himself but you are you are minimalizing and trivializing a very important part of scripture and that's the tragedy of it and this is going back to the late 60s and 70s when i was in college but there was a sense among the campus crusade groups that I was in that Christ's return was so imminent mm. that there were many young people that were hurried up to get married just so they could experience marriage because they knew he was coming immediately. But it seems to me that's sort of the wrong, I mean, wrong reaction. <laughs> How many divorces did you have? River Moon. Yeah, oh yeah, that's another. Well, I mean, I, I'm the oldest one in the room here, but. I don't know. Do you ever remember reading about the G? Do you remember reading about the Jesus movement? Like in California was where it was really hot and heavy. Even in Kate Ashbury, there was a part. But it was you know, when all crazy things that were going on, there was a Jesus movement, and a, a lot, a lot of individuals that influenced my life when I came to know Christ in 1972 came out of the Jesus movement. And there, I mean, that was an enormously, an enormously important movement. It was a revival, and it had a deep impact. But, but to a degree, and perhaps that's right. But to a degree, there was a shallowness about it, because what did not follow, what always should follow, is then okay. Now we really want to start to dig into God's word and start to understand what really is being said. So, it, it's one of those really interesting things about history that. You have seen these waves and waves and waves throughout 2,000 years. Well, that becomes really, it leads to a lot of fantastic things happening and it dies out quickly. And the impact that this kind of teaching should have is not like a rocket where it shoots up and comes back to earth and it's over. It should be like this. I'm really taking this stuff seriously. I'm not trying to find charts and figure out who the Antichrist is and all that. It's not our role. It's wrong if you're trying to do that. But Jesus just says, you don't know when any of this is going to happen, but be ready. That's all he's saying to us. Don't, don't get specific until God does. That's a good way to say it. That's a good way to say it. Don't be specific until God gets specific. 
All right, let's move into chapter 14. We're done with prophecy for now. Maybe we should spend <laughs> six more weeks on it. For now, we're done with it. It was now two days before the Passover. So that means it's Wednesday of Holy Week and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I think you know this, but let me just remind you. Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, they go together. Passover is a day. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a week. They go together, and they were they they were often called sometimes just the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but Passover always would kicks it off. And you know, Passover is the celebration of their liberation from Egypt, and slavery in Egypt, and the, the blood of the Lamb put on the doorpost and all that stuff. Unleavened bread is is a it, it, it goes with that now the uh, leaven represents sin and unleavened bread. It's a feast that the 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 atonement for sin has occurred, and so on. It's, it's the, I think I could say it this way, it's the most important feast of first century Judaism. That's why Jesus is in Jerusalem, because he will be crucified on, on Passover in the afternoon. As he was, this is Jesus now, so here, we're, we're back now. Uh, unleavened bread, and chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, must there be an uproar from the people. So Mark is just reminding us of what we had studied earlier before the Olivet Discourse, the growing opposition to Jesus. You've got to remember, the top guys of Judaism want Jesus dead, but they're a little reluctant to act. What is going to change their mind to act? They say... We're not going to try to kill him till after the Feast of Eleven. So that would be eight days later. What causes them to act? You know, you just don't know, you know. Judas. Judas offers to betray Jesus. Because after this event, which we're about to start reading, uh, what will be the upper room and so on that, Judas is going to tell us. Judas is so angry and so frustrated. He storms out of, of the Passover meal at the upper room and goes to the Sanhedrin and says, how much will you pay me if I betray him? And automatically their minds change. I'm, I really summarized and paraphrased some things there, but that's really what happens. So it's Judas's offer of betrayal that causes them to say, okay, we're going to act now. And, and you know that's exactly what happened. All right, so all Mark is doing is reminding us, here's where we are, we're in the middle of Passion Week, uh, you know, how we can say it, and the, the, the conspiracy's still there. So, and while he, now he switches, back on Jesus, focusing on Jesus. While he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, now, this Simon the leper is the man Jesus healed, and that's recorded for us in chapter 1, verse 40 and follow. That was the man Jesus had healed. you got to remember that. So now, Jesus in Bethany. Bethany is just right, right over the hill, the Mount of Olives. It's to the east, just right over the hill is Bethany. Remember, that's where the home of, of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So it's just right over. It's very important. Whenever Jesus was in Jerusalem, he always stayed in Bethany. And so now Simon the leper, whom Jesus had healed, has thrown a banquet. And as he was reclining at the table, the he there would be Jesus, a woman 
came with an alabaster flank, a flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, let me stop here for a minute. A number of things, again, in typical Mark fashion, he leaves a lot of detail. Dr. Drama, real quick. The woman is Mary, the sister of Martha. We learn that from John's account, John, the writer of the gospel. This is Mary, the sister of Martha. Now, Mark tells us, an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. That means nothing to you and me today. But it would have been a flask about this high with a narrow neck to it. And you would break that, and the nard is an extremely expensive uh, uh, perfume-like substance that you would buy in the east from India or from the islands off the coast in the Indian Ocean. This was worth a year's wages. So this, there's two things we can conclude from this in terms of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the sister, sister of Martha. This was a fairly affluent family. If they had something like this. But what one expositor has suggested, and this is just a suggestion, you have to figure out why would... This was a family heirloom. This was something that was very precious to this family. They were going to only use it perhaps at the death of, of Lazarus or of, of someone prominent in their family. It was a very, very expensive uh, container of perfume that was usually associated with anointing someone at, when, they're, when they died. So what Mary does is, take, if it is a family heirloom or whatever it was, she takes this, and what she does is she pours it over the head of Jesus in John's Gospel, says he, she also anoints his feet with this. Now, when this flask is broken, because it is a perfume-like substance, the entire home would be filled with the smell. I mean, it would have been, a, and you know, I, I have no idea what it smells like. I, I really don't. But it, it's not an offensive, noxious smell. It's a, it's a pleasant, incredibly delightful smell that just filled the house. Now, there were some, verse 12, uh, verse 4, excuse me, there were some who said to themselves, why was this ointment wasted like this? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. In John chapter, in John's gospel, John tells us that's Judas. Judas is the one who said this. The disciples are the ones who are protesting this. And Judas is leading the way. Remember, Judas was the treasurer of the group, and Judas had pilfered already some of the money. So it's doubtful he really means this if you give him to the poor. What he's thinking is, man, I could have I could have pilfered some of this. I could have gotten some of this. And so they scold her. Jesus intervenes, verse 6. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. For me. In the gospel accounts in Matthew and in John, he adds, She has anointed me for my death. Mark leaves that out. And he says, You said about giving to the poor. You, verse 7, you will always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. 
she has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so Jesus fairly forcefully rebukes them, and specifically Judas, but rebukes them. And so people have sometimes misread this. You always have the poor with you. That means we don't do anything for the poor. That's not what he's saying. You always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. You will always have the opportunity to do good for those who are poor. But you're only going to have me for a short time. She understood that. And so what Jesus does is affirms what she does, but gives this symbolic power of what she did. She's anointed my body for my burial beforehand. Now, what we don't know, really, what we don't know is whether Mary really understood it that way. More than likely, she isn't thinking it in that way. She just wants to do something very, very special for Jesus. Because, I mean, typically, <clears throat> typically, but often, when a guest would come into, a prominent guest would come into your house, and this is almost unimaginable for you and me today in the 21st century, but you, you would sometimes anoint their, their, their head. Can you imagine doing that? It was not, of course, this is very typical. You would wash the feet or a servant would wash the feet. And again, if it's a very prominent, you would anoint their, their feet. You would put some special perfume on their feet. So she's doing it. Jesus says even my whole body. So Jesus is, Jesus is extending a much more powerful symbol to what Mary really did. You guys knock it off. And he rebukes them. And then he says something that, is, that was true. It really was true in the centuries that followed. Whenever this, all that was wrapped around Jesus' final week, the Passion Week, this part of what Mary did was always included. Today it isn't. Unless you're reading this, you don't. This isn't something that's told every time in the gospel. But Mary's, Mary's servant spirit and her incredible gift to Jesus and her anointing of Jesus was a part of the proclamation of God. And so Jesus, is, again, is elevating what Mary did, the sister Martha, what, what he did, what she did for him. The poor, you're always going to be able to serve. But you only have a few hours left to serve me. Mary has chosen. Notice that good? Mary has chosen to do what she could. And what she did was incredible, phenomenal. All right? What would be the um, contemporary application of this? There's a lady a number of years ago, my wife has the book, I can't remember, I can't remember what, what the author's name is, but she wrote a book, she could, she did what she could. What can you do for Jesus? What can you do for Jesus today? And so Mary did something extraordinary. But the point of this lady's book, again, my wife read the book. She has it at home. I just don't remember the title. But what that day is, that's, you always say, Jesus, what can I do for you? She did what she could. 
some of the, you know, and that's not necessarily a monetary or materialistic way of thinking about it, although it could be that, you know, you know the things we do for the Lord, in the name of the Lord, whatever, but she did what she could. And so Mary regarded this as a priority. Jesus is in Bethany, he's at Simon, probably Naz, uh, Lazarus, her brother, who was you know, a very prominent man in that town, so he was probably there at this banquet that Simeon was, uh, Simon was throwing. But the, the point is, she just said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go for Jesus. It's going to be a public event, and I'm going to annoy him. And in, in, uh, in, a, in a way, she did what she could. It was an extraordinary demonstration of her love for Jesus. And this book that Peggy has, she did what she could to show that she loves Jesus. That's how she completes the, 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 the sentence in her book. And that's what my wife is really, she's really influenced by that, just in thinking that way. I love Jesus. What can I do for him today? I think that's a good application of it. And the lady that mm -hmm. had two mites. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, she gave. She gave out, you know, exactly. I, I really want to just, because I, I got to quit here, but I really want to get six, 10, because this is what I told you. Look at the first word of verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot. All that happened there, and that rebuke, and everything is hacking. This, and it's hard to know exactly what's going on in Judas' mind. What's his motivation? Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. This changes the Jewish leadership's mind. We're going to act now because one of his is willing to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Mark, Mark, Matthew 26 tells us it's 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. And he sought opportunity to betray him. So this plot was hatched, really, actually, up in Capernaum even. But this plot is hatched. The Jewish leadership has made the decision. Now Judas has given them, given them the impetus to act now. And so what, what we read earlier in chapter 14, they want to kill him, but they're going to wait till after the feast. Judas changes their mind. Now, Jesus will be killed on Passover because of what Judas decided to do. And so what Mark seems to be telling us, and that is somewhat buttressed by the Matthew account, is what happened over this issue of the anointing of Jesus' head and feet with this very expensive perfume, tech oil, whatever, that changed his mind. His there, I mean, Jesus' mind. And so, you know, was that out of greed? Was that out of a, this guy's crazy? Why would he allow this to happen? Why, you know, all the, whatever all that is, we just don't know. We can't get inside the mind of Judas. But Mark seems to be saying that event was the final event for Judas. This is what causes him. And so it would seem reasonable that this had been building for a while. He's frustrated with Jesus. And you got to remember something, which always to me, whenever I start thinking about it, I remember Jesus chose Judas. Right? Jesus didn't happen to show up. Oh, okay, I guess you're a part of the group. No, no, no. Jesus chose each one of the 12. And so that then begs this question. Does that mean Jesus knew that Judas would betray him? What's the answer to that? Yes. As a matter of fact, prophecy in the Old Testament says that one close to the Savior will betray him. 
So it's, it just raises all those wonderful theological questions. Oh, I'm so glad we got to this. I wanted to get that done. All right, online. Hey, Jim, uh, any questions? I just want to throw something out there. So could it be that uh, Judas was like, okay, well, I know Jesus is God. And hey, if I can uh, put him on the spot, I know he can just kill all these soldiers. The kingdom won't be here. And I'll have some money at the same time. That's the thing that crosses my mind all the time. And I'm like, hey, you know, two for one. Well, you're giving a, a really good benefit there to Judas. Um, <laughs> I, I guess that's possible. Um, I, I would say it's doubtful that that's really how Judas is looking at it. Because once Judas does betray Jesus, the guilt and grief that he feels is so overwhelming that he commits suicide. Okay. So, I mean, it's hard for me, Fidel, um, it's hard for me to see any, no matter how I tweak it or how I, 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 I twist it, to see anything positive in the motivation of Judas. Uh, it's despicable. The Lord says, um, it's in Matthew's account, tonight one of you is going to betray me. Woe to that man. It would be better if he were never born. So it, whatever is going on, this is a dastardly act, it seems to me anyway. All right. Uh, it's almost a quarter of, I better quit here, or I'm going to be a little more categorical. I must quit here. So I'm going to pray. Thank you guys for all your your uh, good questions and your involvement in the group. Good to see all of you. Russ, it's good to see you. I haven't seen your face for many, many, many years. So it's good to have you in the group. John Phillips, we'll continue to pray for you. Thanks for being a part of the group, too. Now I see you live, Russ. Lord, thank you for our time of study. Um, we just quickly reviewed Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse. Tremendously important material. And just for all of us, the application of this is be ready and be faithful, because we don't know when you're coming back. We want to be. We want to hear you say to us, "Well done, good faithful servant." Lord, we we look forward to return. We genuinely have that that hope, that expectancy, with desire that you're coming back. We can't wait for that. That's the next event on your prophetic program. And also, Lord, just help us to to be the men that you want us to be, as strong men of faith, deeply committed to you. And even as I responded to Jim's question, um, to do what we can for you because we love you, to, to commit ourselves to you in fresh new ways, to do what we can. She did what she could to show her love for Jesus. And that's something we can ask ourselves each day. Lord, what can I do for you today? To always be available, always be ready for all those divine appointments that you send our way each day of our lives. So I commit these guys to you. Give them good rest of the day, good week. Look forward to seeing them again next week. So we commit them to you in Christ's name. Amen.